Hi, I'm Leah Lane, an award-winning travel writer and author of Places I Remember, Tales, Truths, Delights from 100 Countries. On this podcast, we share conversations with travelers about fascinating destinations and memorable experiences around the world. In episode 75, we celebrated by compiling a sampling of some of the best memories we recorded this past year for our award-winning travel podcast. There were so many, we decided to present it to you in two parts, and this is part two. As you listen, jot down the episode numbers of the conversations you most enjoyed so that you can go back and listen to the full episodes. So here's the second part of my favorite excerpts from Places I Remember 2022. In episode 63, architectural historian Victoria Newhouse and landscape architect Alex Pisha discuss memories from their book, Parks of the World. Here, Victoria talks about a park in China, and after, Alex talks about a special memory. One of my outstanding memories of the whole experience was in Changchung, the park in northern China, where we had an amazing food experience. We had found in our travels that we really didn't have enough time to go into restaurants. So we started going to food markets. And the food market that we went to in Changchung was without a doubt the most spectacular with all sorts of exotic foods, duck that had been simmered in tea, and on and on with one thing more exotic than the next. And it was very good food and a lot of fun to to visit. Yeah. Food, food makes a great memory always. Okay, Alex, how about yeah. your special The memory? food was always amazing uh, in China. But I remember part of the process, you know, we would, of course, interview the parks designers and things like that. But we'd also interview park users. And for me, that was some of my, you know, favorite memories was talking to them. And I remember in one park when we were in Tianjin, the wetland park, we spoke with an elderly gentleman about his experiences and what he thought of the park. And he was talking about how he remembers when it was the despoiled urban landfill and eyesore. And now it's been transformed into this amazing space and that he actually takes a two hour long bus ride just to go to the park weekly. And it was it was really like kind of touching to hear. And I think in that same visit, we met a grandmother with her granddaughter who was thrilled with the park, loved to go see the wildlife, the geese. And she grabbed my hand and tried to drag me to see the geese and things like this too. I mean, she was really charming. Just getting to know the locals and talking with them and really understanding like what these spaces mean to them was really, I think, like a highlight of these trips. In episode 64, Victoria Shimino, president and CEO of Visit Williamsburg, discusses fascinating facts of America's historic triangle, Jamestown, Yorktown, and Williamsburg, from early settlers' coffee preferences to, well, she'll tell it here. My favorite way to explore historic Jamestown is being taken around by one of the archaeologists. They're really able to point out, okay, so we found a piece of jewelry from Portugal, and that must have been a trade between a Portuguese sailor and an English sailor and and just very interesting stories. One of the most interesting, and I didn't realize this until I went to Historic Jamestown again after many years when I took this role on, is that the early times for these English settlers were really 
challenging. I mean, at one point, more than half of the settlement was doubt by disease and hunger. And so this group out of desperation turned to cannibalism. Really? Yes. You never hear that in the history books. No, no. And they found in the course of doing these archaeological digs, the remains of a young girl who they trace back to a certain area in England based on her, what was found in her bones from nutrition. So they, you know, back then it was, well, if you were from this area of England, then you ate this kind of diet. And so they're able to trace that back out of severe desperation. And this was discovered that this, you know, settlement had at one point turned to cannibalism just to survive. So, so yeah, just sort of these really interesting stories that you can get in looking at what they're finding within the earth that I find the most fascinating. Expats David Paul Appel and Jose Bolido, longtime travel writers and travel consultants, love their new home, Madrid. In episode 65, they offer memories past and present. Jose goes first. I was here when my family left Cuba in 1967. Franco was in power at the time, the dictator Francisco Franco. It was a very different city. And yet to me, a small child coming out of communist Cuba, it, it seemed wonderful because there was all kinds of candy and ham and wonderful things to eat and that, that we didn't get in Cuba at the time. I remember things like there were the serenos, which were these gentlemen who stood on the corners at night with a big bunch of keys dangling off their pant loop. And if you came in after a certain hour back to your building, you would have to clap your hands and they would come and open the door for you. And these are things that even young Spaniards don't remember. You know, because what they were doing actually was they were also kind of keeping an eye on the population. It was part of being a police state. Right. But these were generally like retired police or whatever who took these jobs to open the doors at night and also to provide assistance if you were mugged or whatever, which I don't think happened very much. But it's just a very interesting memory of a world that no longer is, and yet it's still Madrid. Mine is a lot more recent. I have a lot of uh, nice memories associated with Madrid, but the most dramatic perhaps occurred in January of 2021 when the city was buried under the biggest snowstorm in a century. And it was called Filomena, three and a half feet of snow. And normally Madrid gets a few flakes here and there. They don't even stick. Oh, look, a little, you know, a little flurry. How exotic. But this sort of threw everyone into a tizzy. It was fun for the first couple of days. People were sledding and skiing down the streets. Snowball fights. Snowball fights. (laughs) Epic snowball fights across Grandia, you know, between (laughs) the kids. And you really had to watch out. Rudy Schreiner and Christian Karst, co-founders of Ama Waterways Luxury Cruise Line, talk about river cruising on episode 66. Well, I have to say, when we mentioned the Sambesi Queen on the Truba River in Africa, really seeing at sunset the herds of elephants coming down like a stampede to the river to drink the babies in the middle, that's just such a, such a spectacular moment. But the one I remember the most, and back to Africa, is we offer a pre or post land program to Rwanda. Rwanda. To see the gorillas. To see the gorillas. Oh my goodness, the and, river cruising and gorillas. What else can you ask for? And I never thought that uh, this would be my emotionally most special moment when it comes to the travel experiences. I can't Being imagine. 
you can go see the gorillas and come back and have champagne. It sounds absolutely, perfect. Absolutely. But really seeing the silverback when you open the branches after a couple of hours of going there and then being so peaceful and all the little ones and the teenagers playing around. It's something so magical. It's hard to describe. It's an experience everyone should see once in their life to understand. If, the absolutely, world. if they can. And I love gorillas so much. I've adopted a gorilla from the Diane Fossey yeah. Fund. Her name is Basoki. <laughs> and I have her picture in my hall. So I love your memory. How about you, Rudy? Now, I do have uh, special river cruise segments, which I always do enjoy very much when I'm the ownership. And that's, there are two rivers, especially. One is the Moselle River. The Moselle, to me, is the most beautiful cruise area in, in Central Europe because it's a beautiful small river with extremely steep vineyards, very lush and very green. And it's so peaceful there with little villages. That's one area where I always, always cruising through it, but I really enjoyed it. The Douro River in Portugal. The Douro is very narrow, fairly deep. Sometimes you almost feel like you are whitewater rafting. And sometimes you have the rocks right next to you. Yeah, big rock formations coming up out of the water. So these are these two of the my very special cruises in Europe. Paul Spencer Soszewski has been a conservationist with the World Wildlife Fund for over 50 years. In episode 67, he shares many global encounters, including this one. When I was hired at WWF and I started working there in 1981, I was coming from Indonesia where I had been working in advertising. Before that, I was in the Peace Corps in Borneo. And they hired me to help promote the brand of WWF. As you know, any kind of NGO, nonprofit lives and dies by branding, by success right. stories, by tugging on heartstrings. Right. I saw my role as helping to get nature conservation on the global agenda. If you go back to 1981, conservation wasn't a front page story anywhere. It was sort of in the back of the, yeah, it was sort of on the back of back of the newspaper with the gardening tips. Exactly. We tried to follow a scientific program, but our donors wanted us to follow an emotional program. We would promote charismatic megavertebrates like the panda in China. Now, my colleagues went to China, and we can credit them with opening up China to nature conservation because the Chinese at that time, it was only a few years after Richard Nixon's ping pong diplomacy. I remember. We're the same generation, so we we have a common language. And we helped them work with panda diplomacy. We said to them, this is one way you can rejoin the international community. And the panda was a wonderful symbol, and it became WWF's logo. It's cute. Very. It's endangered. Very. It lives in uh, an exotic part of the world. And as Sir Peter Scott, the first chairman of WWF, said, it can be reproduced in black and white. <laughs> Beverly Hurley is editor of GardenDestinations.com and a contributor to the new book, Gardens of the World. In episode 68, she shares her favorite gardens. This is considered one of the top seven world gardens. And that would be Kirsten Bosch Botanical Garden in Cape Town, South Africa. 
Just as Longwood Gardens is the in the U.S. is a garden to aspire to go to, taking in the magic of Kirsten Bosch Botanical Garden is definitely should be on your list. This is a garden that took a difficult environment. It's on the slopes of Table Mountain, the iconic mountain that rises above Cape Town. It also has the plants of the Finbus, which the Finbus is the fine bushed kind of plants that Cape Town is known for. In fact, that region has its own kingdom in the plant kingdom and the plants are very rare. So we're talking about the proteas and the ericas and many of the other lovely Finbus plants that are in Kirsten Bosch. And then they added formal gardens. They added a conservatory. They have an arboretum. And I like what they did in their arboretum of trees. They added an elevated tree walkway above the treetops. They call it the boom slang, which is the name of the poisonous snake in South Africa. But you actually are up on this elevated walkway walking through the treetops, which is a very uh, wonderful way to experience an arboretum is instead of being on the ground looking up, you're above the treetops looking down. And then you have the iconic Table Mountain anywhere you look in Kirsten Bosch. So I definitely would add that to any travel. I spent two days there when I went and I could go back and spend a dozen more. Natalie Dietl of the State Tourist Board of Southwest Germany and Cornelia Starr of the Baden-Baden Tourism Board share many surprises in this special European region. In episode 69, Here's one of Natalie's favorites. You know, there are prehistoric finds that I visited in the Swabian Alps. Can you tell us something about the ancient caves there? Yes, there are several caves you can visit, and they are from the Ice Age. So they are one of our UNESCO World Heritage, and it's like one of the oldest, and you still can some see some paintings in the wall from from the Ice Age times. And then you have the Ice Age uh, figures, which uh, have been found in the caves. And you can see some of them, for example, in the museum in uh, Tübingen, in a city close by on the Swabian Alp. It's a lovely city with a really lovely old town. And there in the museum, you can also see the prehistoric founds of the Ice Age caves. Again, those go back maybe 43,000 years. So they're really outstanding. There are lake dwellings around the Alps, which are past settlements of the Bronze Age, the early Iron Age. That's interesting, too. I read that the oldest wheel in Europe was found there in this area from around 3000 BC. So there's lots of ancient things to look at. Yes, definitely. So the lake dwellings, to be honest, start in the area of Upper Swabia, if you want to be completely correct. Then in the in the south on Lake Constance, you have another pile dwellings on the lake you can discover. And we, in general, we are adventurers. So the, the oldest wheel has been found here, but also in Karlsruhe, the bicycle has been found. So oh, really, um, the bicycle yes. and the car and the wheel. Wow. <laughs> we, we invent a lot of things over Whoa. the years. In episode 70, four luxury and boutique hotel general managers share inside info, helpful advice, and surprises. Here's one about pets with Sergio McLean and Anton Moore. Do people bring cats? I always wondered. I have a cat and I never hear about that. I know they don't like to travel. They do. They do. But they're not as, as they're not as popular. And in our case, we did draw a line on the weight of the pet, whether it's a dog or a cat. And, you know, no exotic pets like big parrots or snakes, things like that. We don't we don't accept. 
the rest of you as well? Yeah. 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 The, best, the best are celebrity pets. Oh, please oh. tell us. Celebrity pets are, are my favorite. We had a guest and dog's name was Audrey. And when the handler would call down room service, they would act as if the, the dog was the actual guest or a child. So Audrey will be dining at three o'clock this afternoon. She would like organic boiled chicken cubed. And she got it, I have no doubt. And she got it. And she got it. Served on a room service tray. And that's how she dined each day. In episode 71, avid hiker Jeff Herman talks about the best trails in the U.S., including the benefits of hiking the Appalachian Trail and the Pacific Crest Trail. So, Jeff, do you have any experience with the Appalachian Trail? I haven't hiked the Appalachian Trail myself, but a colleague of mine in Indianapolis, he spent the whole summer hiking the trail. It was a great way for him to recollect his thoughts after he was divorced to sort of replot his life. Absolutely. Many people just do little bits and it's lots of fun and they take years and years to complete the experience. It's a wonderful thing to do. How about the Pacific Crest National Scenic Trail on the other coast? Do you know anyone who's hiked that one, Jeff? Yes, I have. And he did it in strange costumes that got a lot of notoriety. Sometimes he wore like, you know, kilts and everything, which you don't normally do on a hiking trail. But he photographed this whole journey across the Pacific Crest Trail. and It was pretty cool. Is that typical? Is it kind of a weird trail? It's a little odd, but you have people from all over who come there to hike. And I guess this was Ron, and he just decided he was going to make it a pictorial adventure. Wow. I love it. San Miguel Allende, Mexico, has been named Best Small City in the World six times by Condé Nast Traveler. In Episode 72, Tourism Director Tanya Castillo shares why. And we also talk of excursions outside the city, like this one. There's another trip I took, which is a little further from San Miguel, to visit the monarch butterflies, which come there every year. They spend four or five months. They fly about 2,800 miles from Canada and the U.S. to migrate exactly. to this beautiful forest. And they hang in the trees, you know, orange all over the trees. And then when it gets warmer, they come out and fly. Now, I took the trip. And I'm, it's like, I guess, a little warning to you. If it's a cold day, don't do it because it's a long Don't do trip. it. Exactly. I know. And I took. <laughs> the steps it's a long walk up very high up and you have a horse part of the way if you want to get there and then it was so cold they just stayed in the trees which was kind of a disappointment so make sure it's a nice sunny day not and a warm day and then you'll see this gorgeous gorgeous sight of the of the monarch butterflies are they still coming in great numbers yes they're still coming it's a huge attractive also for it's not Guanajuato it's it's in Michoacan actually Yes, but I mean, this can tell you the huge amount of different activities on nature Mexico has. So it's not just about uh, Guanajuato. We have a lot of states nearby that have this attraction. And what we are also trying to do with, with the economy is like the economy, not just not stay in San Miguel de Allende. So you can do actually these trips to another states and help others. So it's wonderful what Mexico has or near San Miguel de Allende. In episode 73, we talk with Tim Peck, CEO of OMBI, a renowned design group, about luxury lodgings around the world. Here he describes some of the sites in Saudi Arabia where he has worked. Alula, I've read about that and seen pictures. That looks like Petra in Jordan. I mean, it has the same quality. It is Petra in in many respects. It's in a spectacular natural context and undeveloped, you know. 
the sort of things that are being developed around that are, are amazing. There's there's incredible wadis that run close deserts, to deserts, yeah, yeah, which are it's sort of the desert, but the almost the oasis within the right. desert, which has this a, a wonderful uh, experiential feeling in terms of the contrast of the desert and the landscape and the water and the mountains. Right. And then you go out to the Red Sea, which has the reefs, which are will r- rival anything you see in the Maldives. It's just, just really quite spectacular. And then you go up into the mountains, completely contrasting, wonderfully unsophisticated environment. Up in the mountains, it's actually cold. Really? I, mean, I, I never thought I've, of Saudi Arabia. Oh, I, I was up in the mountains, just in, in Al-Baha, just south of, or quite a bit south of Jeddah. The mists came in and it was we were actually driving through fog. <laughs> and it was very, very cold. Near Neom, up in the northern areas, they're building a ski resort. You know, I heard it's the, a $500 billion project eventually to develop Neom. I have been reading about that. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and we're lucky enough to be part of that. Looking at the some of the hospitality side of it, so it's a really interesting country, and obviously they're very ambitious in their targets. There's still a lot to be done, but I think you just have to see it in the perspective of what has been achieved. It's uplifting to hear this, and I hope that the political situation improves and that we all can eventually go there because it sounds like a fantastic destination. In episode 74, Harvey Bierman, a ski race competitor and a ski expert, offers one of his special memories. A couple of years ago, I had the privilege of being in Whistler Black Home with a group. And uh, one day they surprised us with a trip in the heli. So we took about an hour van ride to find the helicopter. So it was staged very far from the mountain. It had not snowed in Whistler in about three weeks, but it had been unusually cold. So when we got in the heli, we went up. And the the guide decided to go to a location that was another 40-minute flight from where we found the helicopter because they hadn't been there in years. They had done so much powder skiing recently that they needed to go a little further out to find untracked snow. And they were hopeful that because it had been so cold for so long that the snow would be good. I can tell you eight lift rides in the helicopter later, our day was done. They had to change our guide out after six runs because... She could no longer keep up with us uh, and needed to tap out because normal day is six helicopter rides. Oh my God. And to this date, the, the group I went with and I, you know, look at the pictures, speak of the memories and talk about recreating it. And it's one of those things, you know, no trip will ever be as good as that one. It'll be good in some different way. It was my first time in it, you know, doing the heli skiing. And I can't wait to take my kids in a similar experience before my body gives out. We hope you enjoyed listening to some of my favorite memories and stories from the past year. And if you didn't already listen to episode 75, go back and find lots more. Episodes 75 and 76 of Places I Remember bring you the best from 2022. Thanks for listening to our award-winning podcast. We've recorded over 100 episodes of Places I Remember. So follow us on any podcast app. And new monthly episodes are also on YouTube with gorgeous video. My book, Places I Remember, is available in print and Kindle, and I read the audio version. Follow my travel writing at Forbes.com. Contact me at the links in the show notes or on my website, PlacesIRememberLeahLane.com, and keep making your own travel memories.